you know, I've, I've learned in doing a lot of uh, cross-border work with non-U.S. clients that most people not in the United States do not actually think the IRS is a pleasant agency to deal with. Surprising, I know. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I am doing pretty good. How are you? I'm also doing pretty good. Uh, we're uh, just winding down. We're winding our way through the thicket that is the end of the school year until we can get to the thicket that is uh, the summertime when children have no school. And for about a week, they're entertained. And then a week after that, they're bored. So you have to, <laughs> have to really plan it out. You got to really figure out what, what it is that they're going to do to stay entertained beyond a week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't think of that. It's already May, huh? Yeah, school's going to be out in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Wow, we're at that point already. Is there any summer camps or anything yet? Um, Is that all canceled still? There's some. Yeah, there's some. We're not going to do too much, I don't think. I don't think it's going to be super heavy on summer camps. Um, We're fleeing town towards the end of June anyways, so most of the summer camps don't really work because our kids aren't going to be there for like half of it. You still got to pay for the full thing, but they'll, you know, the kids only be there for half of it. So (laughs) rather than subsidizing all of the other summer camp attendees, um, most of my kids are not doing summer camps. Got it. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Makes sense. I think so. Others might think that I'm just a terrible parent, but I think it is a very logical way to do things. <laughs> I only went to camp once as a kid. Once. Mm-hmm. I begged my parents for that one time. Mm-hmm. Never wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. So you're doing not the right ex- thing. Not the experience you were hoping for, huh? It was interesting. I did one that was uh, like fine fine arts associated. So I had like an orchestra class. I had a drama class. Uh, I can't remember what else I did. And it kept me busy. It kept me really busy. Um, there was no leisure time. I was still waking up at, you know, like 7 a.m. Like as if it was like a whole school day. So it was, it was tiresome. After, after the end of it, I think I just really wanted to be that lazy bored summer as a kid. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, hmm. I usually had something to do. We all had to do swimming. Mm-hmm. They had they had sort of swimming for kids. So me and all my siblings, we always did swimming. And then um, we were well, all the boys were doing like Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. So we had like Cub Scout camp stuff. And then Boy Scout camp was a a week or two every summer. That was not uh, discretionary. You were required to go. <laughs> I did not beg necessarily, but we were we were attendees, uh, which were were really actually kind of interesting. Um, I know Boy Scouts gets a bit of a bad rap, but for for a child who is not in an abusive relationship, it's actually a pretty interesting program. <laughs> you know, you get to be outside and get dirty and throw rocks and build fires and break things and do stuff like that. <laughs> Boy Scouts shoot guns shoot bows and arrows, uh, carve things with knives. Yeah, that's Boy Scouts. Kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. So we did a house project this last weekend, and we needed to tie this, like, nylon rope to these little eye hooks that we did. We were putting up, like, a sunshade in our backyard. Mm -hmm. And so we had to figure out a good way to do the knot. So I asked my husband, Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, bring it back to the Boy Scout days. What's the best knot to do this? And we ended up having to YouTube it because he couldn't remember what a good knot was. But... Mm. Apparently he never did Boy Scouts, so he didn't learn those 
those uh, good lessons on which nots to do. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I would have gone with the old uh, double half hitch if you were looking for a good <laughs> That would have been my knot of choice there. <laughs> Not the single. I'd have done the double. I'd have doubled that up. Especially with the <laughs> nylon rope, you need that extra that extra loop. <laughs> See, that's all that that training comes in handy. Absolutely. Occasionally, yeah. like really occasionally, something like that will happen. We're like, I need to tie a knot for some random reason. <laughs> yeah. And I could tie the knot. Good knots. <laughs> Not very useful in daily life, but occasionally it saves you. <laughs> I think you're using the knots more than like the Pythagorean theorem. Pythagorean mm. theorem, yeah. So you know what? It's coming more handy than other things that we've learned in life. Mm. <laughs> That's a good point. It's a really good point. I I took my oldest hiking the other weekend, and I I brought a pocket knife with me. And one at one point where we were sitting and waiting, I grabbed a stick and I started like carving on it. All the memories came. Back. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, used to do this for hours. You wanna <laughs> you wanna know if somebody is actually bored? That that will do it. You see them doing that? You're like, oh, that person's bored. <laughs> Not saying they need something to do. I'm just saying they are bored. <laughs> just carving sticks there at the little just carving knife. sticks. Yeah, they got a lot of nervous energy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Speaking of nervous people, so. I thought that today we would talk about one of the most punishing provisions, at least in the estate tax rules, um, the little known, little understood, but definitely applicable section 2104B. It is a doozy. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's not too common that in these podcasts we talk about like a very specific code section. So for anybody uh, to whom this sort of thing is not interesting, we apologize, but we'll try to explain it and make it interesting in a way that you'll understand um, how it applies. So let me try and set this up, set the stage up just a little bit because it bears a little bit of history. When you are a U.S. citizen or a U.S. resident, resident meaning you are quote unquote, domiciled here. That means you reside here or you moved here. You were either born here or you moved here. And when you moved here, you had the desire to stay here permanently to make the U.S. your permanent home. If those stars align, then you are a resident for these purposes. So if you're a citizen or you're a resident of the United States, then when you die, you, whether you have to pay it or not, are subject to the estate tax. The estate tax applies to everything that you own in the entire world, we don't care where it's located. We don't care that you only spend that money when you're in that foreign country. We don't care that you only earn that money there and you pay all your taxes in France. We don't care. Uh, if you own it, it is subject to a state tax here in America. Okay, that's the rule if you're a citizen or a resident. But if Instead, you are a non-resident, i.e. you are not domiciled here. You have never come here with the intent to stay here permanently, and you are not a citizen. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you're a citizen and you don't live in the U.S., we also don't care. You're subject to the estate tax, just like all other citizens on your worldwide assets. But if you're a non-citizen, non-resident, then the rules are different. First of all, you are only subject to a state tax on your assets that are located within the United States. Okay, that's the first thing. Second, 
second of all, you are subject to a state tax in the United States on the value of your assets located here that exceeds a grand, amazing total of $60,000, which is what used to be the estate tax exemption for people who were citizens residents back in the 40s. Okay, so this number has not changed much. People who are non-citizens, non-residents do not vote for people in Congress. And so people in Congress do not care about those people and they are not going to ever raise this number. No one has ever suggested actually raising this number. Nobody cares. So you're a non-citizen, non-resident. You pay your estate tax here in the U.S. on your assets located in the U.S. that are worth more than $60,000. Contrast that with, at least as of today, as of recording, a U.S. citizen resident. They only pay estate tax when their estate exceeds $11.7 million. Okay, quite a difference. So when a non-resident, non-citizen dies, the key question right off the bat is, did they own any assets located in the United States? And section 2104B is among the sections that are meant to determine whether they're deemed to have owned assets in the United States. It is a rule that can, in a very su surprising twist, in some instances, treat assets that are very clearly not located in the United States as though they are located in the United States. Okay, so that's the that's the setup. So maybe um, with that, it will make sense then when Rachel, you explain exactly what it is that the section says. Hopefully, that will make sense. Hopefully the setup at least lays the foundation so when you explain what this section says, people will get it. Hopefully. Let's fingers crossed right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So the section 2104B says that if a non-resident, non-citizen transfers U.S.-based assets, let's just say into a trust, right, because we're doing a lot of state planning here, they transfer assets into a trust. And if they retain a beneficial interest in that trust, then all of the trust assets are subject to U.S. estate tax at that person's death. And it's regardless of whether those assets are located in the U.S. at the time of their death. It's because they were located in the U.S. at the time of transfer, it's automatically going to taint all of the other assets in the trust. Doesn't matter now if they're in Canada, Mexico, you name it. They were in the U.S. at the time of transfer. Everything is now tainted. And like you said, Brent, with the estate tax exemption only being $60,000, let's just say you had one condo in Arizona Condo is likely going to be more than $60,000. You have an estate tax liability. And let's say you had your condo in a trust and you had a brokerage account that held U.S. stocks in the trust. Everything is now tainted and is going to be subject to the 40% federal U.S. estate tax. So it's, it's a scary rule. It's a very scary rule. And the biggest thing is... Um, you know, we, we talk about in trust. So if these are going to be indirect, if you've got um, any like in, indirect transfers, if you, let's say it's um, you've transferred assets to a company, you know, that still if you've got um, and let me actually take a step back and say first real quick, if you retain a beneficial interest in the trust, then the trust assets are all included in your estate or you retain a beneficial interest say, in the company, whatever it may be. So if, let's say, again, you have the condo, you have a brokerage account, they were located in the U.S. at the time of transfer, you transferred it into the trust, you've retained some sort of interest in the trust. Um, you can 
you know, you can, uh, you have a power of appointment, a limited power of appointment. You have some sort of beneficial interest. It's all going to be thought of as being located in the U.S., going to be subject to U.S. estate tax. So it's, it's a pretty unforgiving rule. It's, it's a big, bad, scary rule, basically. Very big, bad, scary rule. And so just to break that down just a little bit for people, there's there's a, a number of provisions that will trigger this rule. So number one, uh, if you, uh, as Rachel was describing, make a transfer into a trust and you retain a beneficial interest in the trust, and that is the right to enjoy the income or the principal of the trust assets. And this could be direct enjoyment. It could be indirect enjoyment. So if you have some sort of arrangement with the trust where you get to benefit from its income and principal, even though you're not technically a beneficiary, um, this rule can kick in. That is that is the rule under section 2036. Okay, 2036 says that. 2036 is a little more nuanced than uh, I just described it. We'll, we'll just sort of say for purposes of this discussion that that's where 2036 begins and ends, even though it doesn't actually in, in reality because it's more, it's more complicated than that. Then if instead uh, you make a transfer into a trust and you retain the right to revoke the trust or to take the trust property back, then that will trigger this rule under section 2037. 2037 saying that if you have the right to revoke the trust, then the assets in the trust are treated as if you owned those assets. Then if you have the ability to affect the enjoyment and use of the income or principal of another person um, by either revoking the trust or by man essentially managing the trust, then under, under section 2038, um, the assets of the trust will also be included in this rule. And that rule can apply whether you hold these powers just by your lonesome or you hold them together with another person. So it doesn't really matter. So for example, classic example would be uh, uh, you make a transfer into a trust, you are the trustee of the trust and you can exercise that authority however you want as the trustee. I think in most instances, everybody would agree that will trigger this 2036 there, sorry, 2038 provision, um, and it could then, by by virtue of triggering 2038, would leak into 2104B, okay? In addition to all of that stuff I just said, if you release one of these powers, so let's say you had a beneficial interest in the trust, but you say, oh, I don't want it anymore, you give it up, and then you die within three years of having released that power, this 2104B rule still applies uh, in an effort to prevent people from uh, making deathbed uh, decisions that sort of sever the ties to assets that, that otherwise would be taxable in the U.S. We have this rule that looks back for three years to figure out whether you ever released one of these powers and then the assets would be uh, included in your estate under section 2104B. So 2104B then says, ah, if you tripped up on one of these rules, this 2036 rule about beneficial interest, this 2037 rule about revoking the trust, this 2038 rule about controlling the enjoyment of the trust assets. If you tripped up on one of these rules, uh, Rachel, as you were describing, we are going to pretend that all of the assets in the trust were located in the United States and therefore subject to a state tax when you die. Okay, We're just going to pretend that they all were. It doesn't matter that since you put that condo in the trust, you sold it and the trust reinvested the funds 100% in assets in Guernsey or the UK or Germany or Singapore or Australia or any other place that is not the United States. 
Okay, we do not care. We do not care where those assets are located. We will pretend that they are located in the United States. And as you uh, very rightly described it, Rachel, the trust will be treated as if it was tainted, i.e. all the assets in the trust are tainted. So they're treated as if they're situated or located in the U.S. and therefore they're subject to a state tax here. That is a very harsh rule, very harsh rule. Okay, so put on, sort of imagine with me, you know, put on your thinking caps here. Imagine with me then that someone creates one of these trusts uh, while they're working in the United States because uh, they want to take care of, say, one of their their minor children at the time, uh, and they put $100,000 into this trust for the minor child. The trust is going to last for the minor child's lifetime. Okay. Well, uh, a 30-year-old has a pretty long life expectancy. So let's say the 30-year-old continues to manage the trust, or maybe they have a beneficial interest in the trust for their entire lifetime because they, they didn't know that they couldn't have one of these powers over the trust. The trust does what it's supposed to do. It, it invests and it takes care of the minor child. But this person and the minor child, one year after setting up the trust, they move to a different jurisdiction and they live in that jurisdiction for the rest of their lives. And then this person dies 50 years later, okay, at 80 years old. So 50 years have gone by. The assets of the trust have not been U.S. assets for 50 years. They've been invested. They've been growing. They've been doing what those sorts of things do when people properly manage them, but they've been doing all of that basically in a totally different country for 50 years. The United States does not care. We don't care about any of that history. This rule is agnostic about history. It says, no, no, no. Once this trust was tainted, it is forever tainted. And when that original settler of the trust dies, all of the assets in the trust will be pretended as if they are located in the U.S. and subject to a state tax in the U.S. That's how harsh this rule is. Pretty brutal. Yeah, it's it's bad. And here, too, so to kind of go further into uh, your, your scenario, Brent, let's say... 15 years in, okay, so the, the individual's 45 years old now, they realize, hmm, this trust is a little weird, actually. Maybe I should get a second opinion. And they take it to a different attorney and like, what do you think? Should we change this? Am I good? And that attorney goes and looks at it and thinks, you know what? I Yeah, I don't like this. You know, I think they're... Um, you know, I, th I think you've got a beneficial interest here. I I'd be very concerned that you could have a U.S. estate tax liability. I think we need to decant this into a new trust, meaning you're going to pour over all the assets and create basically a whole new trust. OK, so they do that. And then again, as your scenario goes on, the individual passes away at 80 years old. Just because you decanted it into a new trust, that might not break this, the chain. That new trust now might still be tainted because of those original U.S.-based assets. And if you tried to decant it again into a third trust, because maybe you just want to keep going. Still, it's the, the IRS has not ruled on that. The IRS has not given any guidance on whether decanting it to a new trust breaks the chain. So it's a risk that potentially, if you've decanted it, say, three or four times, that last trust still could be completely tainted because of that first original transfer that you did with the U.S.-based assets. That's, like you said, it's harsh. It's a very, very harsh rule. Yeah, and it's so harsh because, as we were describing, you can retain these interests directly or indirectly, and the IRS is not interested in giving a ruling on whether you could just decant your way out of this problem, i.e. create a new trust and pour 
have the trustee create a new trust and then pour the trust assets uh, into the new trust and therefore get rid of the problem, resolve the problem. Um, it's not clear that you could do that. Even if you could do that, let's say that the subsequent trust into which all the assets were decanted or put into um, does not include any provisions that would give the original grantor a a right to benefit in the trust or would not give them a one of these 2038 powers over the trust and it's certainly not revocable by them okay so none of these bad powers still even if that was effective, you got to survive for three years. If you don't survive for three years, uh, the IRS says, we don't care. Uh, that doesn't do it. And you released it within three years. And therefore, you are deemed to have owned all the assets in the trust still when you passed away. And again, the deemed ownership being all the assets of the trust, regardless of where they're located, are pretended as if they are located in the U.S. and you have to pay estate tax in the United States on assets that are not even located in the United States. So it's a real, real thicket. So sometimes um, when we're being really cautious for clients who might find themselves in this scenario, we are thinking about ways to actually get rid of the trust entirely. And that could be a real challenge. It could be a real challenge, but uh, it may be the only way to really break the chains on the trust, to get rid of that taint on the trust, and to just wholly get rid of the trust entirely, uh, that may be the only option. And so if that's the only option and it's the only way to be be clear on it and being wrong means that you have to pay a estate tax in the United States, then it might be worth doing because a 40% estate tax could be pretty harsh. You know, 40% of a million is $400,000. Well, for somebody who is a non-citizen, non-resident of the U.S., and they only own assets that are not in the U.S., writing a $400,000 check to the IRS is not a pleasant thing to do. So to avoid that result or to prevent that result from happening, sometimes the best thing you can do is just get rid of the trust entirely and uh, and then start over. Just just reset the clock and start right on over. That's how difficult of a problem this is. It's, it's so difficult a problem that to resolve it, you start over. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, just blow the whole thing up and, and start, start up. anew. <laughs> yeah, just blow it up and redo it. Yeah, and and it can be really complicated. If you've got some clients, um, you know, we have a lot of clients with cross-border issues. They do a lot of investments. Um, usually in these types of scenarios, you could have other entities that are involved with the trust. The trust owns uh, limited partnerships, corporations, LLC, I mean, you, you name it, they can have a whole bunch of other entities wrapped up in this big process. And if you have to terminate the trust, which would be, you know, at the top of basically the, the structure, which then all the other structures then have to be amended and modified because of it, it could be a big deal and it's a really big process. But again, to your point, where someone unknowingly might have a U.S. estate tax liability on a big number, if everything's been properly invested, it's been going for a long time, it's it's going to be worth the the long process to, to do so and to try and fix the remedy rather than taking that risk. Yes. And writing that oh so beloved check to the Internal Revenue Service. You know, I've, I've learned in doing a lot of uh, cross-border work with non-U.S. clients that most people not in the United States do not actually think the IRS is a pleasant agency to deal with. Surprising. Mm -hmm. I know. I know. Their <laughs> reputation is so good in the U.S. that outside of the U.S., people also don't think that that's a fun place to be. <laughs> we uh, we thankfully don't run into this problem too often, but 
it's often enough that uh, you have to be really leery of it. Another area we've been talking in, in terms of trust, but another area where it creeps in is in entity structures. So let's say husband sets up uh, an LLC in the U.S. with spouse, but husband is the only one who contributes anything to the LLC. It's all husband's property um, and spouse gets a 50% interest in the entity. Well, giving spouse a 50% interest in the entity and then retaining for yourself an interest in the entity um, could be viewed as retaining an interest that would trigger 2104B. So you can have those sorts of very tricky little scenarios that you just have to you have to be mindful of because the, the, the outcome can be so harsh that you do not want to be dancing on, on top of this line. You want to you want to steer far, far, far clear of this issue. You never want this issue to arise also because of this tainting issue. The tainting issue could then apply to the LLC, for example. Even though it's not a trust, LLCs or other entity structures can also get dragged into the rule. So you got to be super careful. You got to avoid the rule uh, as much as humanly possible because it is not a fun one. Uh, as we say, it's the kind of rule that if you if you have this problem, you just blow everything up and start over again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. If anyone, yeah, if, if anyone has a client that has any cross-border work going on, this is just something to keep an eye on. Were there U.S.-based assets? What has happened to them? Go from there and then figure out what, what, what has happened and if there could be potentially a problem with 2104. Yep. Very aptly said. Well, uh, I guess we'll leave it there unless you have anything else to add. Nope. Like you said, no. big, big, bad, scary rule. Blow it up. That's That sums it up right there. Yeah, just blow it up. That's <laughs> But it's like in Boy Scouts. You just blow stuff up. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much again, Rachel. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's been fun. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. Uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.